All right, welcome everyone. Um, my name is Konstantin Boussalis. I am a uh, assistant professor of political science here at Trinity, and I am uh, very happy to be um, chairing this talk um, by uh, Dr. John Cook, who is a research assistant professor at the Center for Climate Change Communication at George Mason University. And Dr. Cook um, specializes, uh, researches uh, cognitive science, and in particular, a lot of applications in um, climate change disinformation and more generally misinformation. Uh, and um, I know John from his um, big website, uh, uh, Skeptical Science, uh, which is a repository for all sorts of misinformation regarding uh, climate change. And then also, of course, uh, responses, scientific responses to each of these claims that circulate out there in the wilderness um, about uh, climate change. Uh, and so, um, uh, uh, John, we're very, you're very welcome here to Trinity and we very much look forward to uh, what you have to tell us about fighting fake news about climate change. The floor is all yours. Thanks, Constantine. So let me um, share my slides. That all coming up okay? Yep. Great. All right, I'll jump into it then. So I'm going to talk about uh, my research and other people's research into how to counter misinformation, particularly climate change, but the principles I'm talking about really apply to any form of misinformation. And, and there's a very practical element to my work too. Like it's, it's all based on cognitive psychology and and how people think about misinformation and how to correct misperceptions but with a very practical element uh, in terms of putting this, this theory into practice. Um, but before I can jump into how to counter climate misinformation, I think it's, it's a good to lay the foundation of just the, the bare basics of, about climate change and what we need to understand about climate change in order to understand um, the, some of the, the, I guess, categories of climate misinformation. Uh, and I'll just be very brief on this. Um, firstly, we know that global warming is happening. We see warming indicators all across our climate system, whether it's thermometers measuring warming or um, whether it's the ocean warming, ice melting, species are migrating because of the changing climate, uh, seasons are shifting. We see climate change um, signs uh, all over our climate system. We know that this warming is because of human activity and similarly, uh, we have many lines of evidence independently confirming that human activity is the main cause of the last few decades of global warming. During the q and I'm happy to dive into some of these if people are curious. Climate scientists, um, experts in climate research agree that humans are causing global warming. And there's been multiple studies that have quantified the, the consensus. Um, I have published one of these studies in 2013, but there have been multiple studies um, finding between 90 to 100% consensus that humans are causing global warming. And a number of studies all converging on that figure of 97% consensus. Uh, we know that the impacts from climate change will overall be bad. There might be a handful of positive impacts in some parts of the world, but when you add up all the impacts on society and on environment, they're overwhelmingly negative. 
but we do have the solutions to, to deal with climate change and avoid the worst impacts. Um, we have all the technology we need. Uh, it's just a matter of finding the political will to, to um, make those transitions to, to a cleaner um, uh, society. So those are the, the five, uh, what we call in, in our field, the five key climate beliefs. These five categories of beliefs or attitudes or knowledge about climate change. Um, a number of years ago, I'd say it would be roughly half a decade ago now, Constantine um, from Trinity and Travis Cohen from Exeter University emailed me a paper that they were working on which used uh, machine learning to categorize the different uh, themes found in climate misinformation or in, in conservative think tank websites, which was a very prolific source of misinformation. And it was, it was really exciting research and, and I am um, very keen to work with these two very smart guys. So I said to them, um, uh, identifying the themes in misinformation is useful, but what would be really practical would be uh, actually identifying specific uh, climate myths in misinformation. Is it possible to train a machine to do that? And so we started this long research project, which is still going uh, into training a machine to detect different uh, categories of climate misinformation and specific claims. And the first thing we did was build a taxonomy or a landscape of climate denialist claims. And what struck us was the, the five categories of climate misinformation were an exact mirror universe of of the five climate beliefs that have been developed by Ed Maybach and my other colleagues at George Mason University. So global warming isn't real. It's not caused by us. Um, you can't trust the experts and you can't trust climate science. Uh, the climate impacts won't be bad and the solutions won't work. There's no hope to solve climate change. And so while there's climate scientists and educators and climate communicators all trying to uh, communicate the facts about climate change. At the same time, all this misinformation is being produced and, and uh, distributed and shared online and, and um, promoted on, on in the mainstream media, um, portraying the opposite message, the, these, these disbeliefs. So we need to come up with um, ways to, to counter this misinformation. But in order to do that, the first thing we need to do is understand what what damage does misinformation do? We can't really undo the damage or find ways to prevent the damage until we understand how misinformation does damage. So the first thing I want to do is look at some of the research into how misinformation does damage. Uh, we've been collecting survey research here at George Mason uh, in collaboration with Yale. Uh, and one thing we ask people is, how many climate scientists agree that humans are causing global warming? Um, as I was looking at earlier, when we've actually quantified the degree of scientific consensus, it's around 97%. But when we ask the general public what percentage of climate scientists agree, the average answer is around 67%. There's a big gap between public perception and the actual 97%. And one of the big contributing factors to this is misinformation casting doubt on the scientific consensus. Over time, the public has been getting more and more polarized. Um, Republicans and Democrats are getting further and further apart on their attitudes about climate change. And this polarization actually goes a lot deeper than just climate perceptions. Uh, if we look over a longer time frame, 
trusting science has um, been getting polarized as well. Um, rough, the liberals are roughly uh, steady or slightly increasing their trust in science over time, but conservatives have been getting less and less trustful of, of science over time, which is a very disturbing trend. Um, and one of the reasons why is because of misinformation. Um, I talked about the machine learning research that Constantine, Travis and I have been doing. One of the results that jumped out at us once we had trained a machine to categorize misinformation um, is we built a history of climate misinformation over the last two decades. And by far the biggest category, almost equivalent to all the other categories combined, was the category of attacking scientists and attacking climate science, trying to undermine public trust in science. This is the biggest um, uh, category of climate misinformation. You know, they're trying not just to present arguments about the science or arguments against solutions, they're trying to actually confuse and erode trust in climate science itself. And that's, that's a very dangerous um, type of misinformation. So how do we counter misinformation? It's, it's very challenging and research going back decades has, has looked at what's going on under the hood when people have misconceptions and they read corrections and the corrections are trying to undo belief in false, um, false information. And the reason why it's difficult debunking myths is because of how our brains work. Um, essentially, we build mental models of how the world works, and our mental models um, are made up of a whole a bunch of interconnected parts. A causes B, and B causes C. Um, but what happens if part of our mental model is a myth? What happens if B is wrong? So we're saying we're, we're thinking in our minds A causes B, which is a myth, which causes C, and then you find out that B is a myth uh, when you debunk, when people read a debunking or a fact check, what the debunking does is it's reaching into their mental model and plucking that myth out. And that creates a gap in people's mental models. Suddenly that, those causal links are broken. A causes, well, there's nothing there which causes C. And people don't like that. People don't like uh, incomplete mental models. They are actually more comfortable with a complete inaccurate model compared to an incomplete, more accurate model. And so research has found that when you correct misinformation and people remember the correction, they accept the correction, they still come to rely on the misinformation afterwards. Uh, and scientists call this the continued influence effect. People still believe misinformation after, after they've read a correction, um, except if the debunking not only shows how the myth is wrong, but it also dislodges or replaces the myth with a replacement fact. What they found was if you show the myth is wrong and also fill that gap with a replacement fact, then the myth doesn't come back and continue to influence people. Um, I'll give you an example which makes it maybe a little bit more tangible. Um, there's been research involving mock trials where, they where the participants in this experiment essentially play the part of a mock jury and there's a suspect who's accused of a crime. And they found that when they provided evidence exonerating the suspect, people still thought, well, maybe he did it. 
but when they provided evidence exonerating them plus an alternative suspect, then they stopped believing that the initial suspect was guilty because they had that replacement suspect. So this is one of the most important things you need to do when you're countering misinformation. Um, you need to basically dislodge the myth with a replacement fact. I used to call it an alternative fact. Then Kellyanne Conway kind of took that phrase for her own and it's taken on a whole negative connotation. So I tend to use the term replacement fact now. Uh, and so, so that's, that's a non-trivial thing to do. You, when you're debunking a myth, you have to think, what is the gap I'm creating in people's mental model? And what fact replaces that? If, you're, if, if it's a causal thing, if people are arguing, well, the sun causes global warming, it's not enough just to show that the sun can't be causing global warming. You have to explain what actually is causing global warming. Provide that replacement fact, that replacement causal explanation. Uh, but it's also not enough to um, just provide that fact. You also need to explain it in a, in a way that is ideally just as or more sticky, simple, compelling, engaging as the myth that you're trying to debunk. And I find that uh, in order to make the science that I communicate more sticky, I found that a really useful framework is the book Made to Stick. They identify six traits that are seen in sticky messages, whether they're the successful ad campaigns or folk stories or urban legends. All of these sticky messages or stories have some of these following six traits. They're simple, unexpected, concrete, credible, emotional, and they tell a story. If you can tick any of these boxes or the more boxes you tick, the more sticky your message is and the more likely it is to get people's attention, be remembered and be shared uh, and also dislodge the misinformation that you're trying to, to um, debunk. Although this applies more generally to any form of public engagement and science communication not just debunking misinformation. So, so that's the first thing, and that's already a lot and a challenge. Fight sticky myths with stickier facts. But unfortunately, while that's a necessary part of debunking uh, misinformation, it's not enough. You, you need to do more than just a debunk. Um, you need to do more than just identify that replacement fact and communicate it in a sticky way as possible. And let me um, give you some research which explains why just communicating the facts isn't sufficient to debunk misinformation. So um, there was some research published by Sander van der Linden, um, who's now at Cambridge. Uh, I think he was at Princeton at the time that they did this research and he did it in collaboration with some of my colleagues here at Mason, as well as some colleagues at Yale. And what they did was they exposed people to conflicting pieces of information. One of the uh, messages that they showed their experiment participants was some misinformation about climate change. And this was taken um, verbatim from the Global Warming Petition Project, which was a website um, that featured tens of thousands of science graduates signing a statement saying that humans aren't disrupting climate. So basically it was a list of people that were perceived as experts uh, signing a statement going against the scientific consensus. 
And if this technique looks familiar, you may have seen the Great Barrington Declaration in the news over the last week. This, this, the Great Barrington Declaration is basically a list of thousands of people signing a statement um, pr proposing basically a herd immunity approach to, to the COVID pandemic. And it uses exactly the same techniques as the Global Warming Petition Project. So, so these techniques of misinformation are seen across different scientific topics. What they found when people were shown, oh wait, oh yeah, so one group was shown just the misinformation, another group was shown a message about the 97% consensus that humans were causing global warming, and a third group was shown both the misinformation and the 97% consensus. What they found were the group that were shown just the fact, the 97% consensus, showed a strong positive effect, um, not only their perceived consensus, but their belief that humans were causing global warming and climate change was happening and even support for climate action as well. People who were shown only the misinformation by itself showed a negative effect. So the misinformation did reduce their um, acceptance of climate change. But people who were shown both the fact and the myth had no effect. It was basically fact and myth cancelled each other out. Uh, and the reason why was because when people are presented with two conflicting pieces of information and they don't know how to resolve the conflict, the risk is that they just disengage and believe neither. Uh, when people are presented with that kind of situation, it's a bit like uh, this, this scene from uh, classic Star Trek. So I don't know if any of you have ever watched Star Trek. I'm really dating myself now. In fact, it was out before I was born, but I'm a nerd, so I watched it anyway. But a lot of uh, old Star Trek episodes feature these episodes where a character gets cloned and there's an evil clone and then there's the, the real character. And, and someone has to try to work out who's the evil clone and who's the real person. Now, that's basically the conundrum that the general public uh, face now. There's misinformation flying around and there's facts and they have to try to work out which is, which is the real facts and which are the evil misinformation. Um, and if they can't tell the difference, if they can't tell which is which, then research shows that people believe in the facts less. So that's another way that misinformation does damage. Not just making people believe wrong things, it can stop people believing the facts. And misinformation doesn't have to even be coherent or based on an argument or based on evidence to have this effect. It just needs to exist. It needs to be out there. And that can stop people believing in facts. This to me is one of the most insidious and dangerous um, traits of misinformation. But it also points to the solution to misinformation. Uh, the way that we help people uh, resolve the conflict between fact and myth, the way that we counter misinformation is Basically, um, it comes from a branch of psychological research called inoculation theory. Um, this is research going back to the 1950s. What they found was, borrowing the idea of vaccination, if you expose people to a weakened form of misinformation, that um, helps them build up their resilience, their immunity, so that when they encounter the actual misinformation, 
they're less likely to be misled. So what do I mean by a weakened form of misinformation? There's two elements to an inoculating message. Firstly, warning people of the threat that they might be misled. And secondly, providing counter arguments that explain how the misinformation misleads. What are the logical fallacies? What are the historical techniques that misinformation use to distort the facts? And that's really the guts of inoculation. Explain the techniques used to mislead. Let me give an example from that research with the Global Warming Petition Project. In, this is an excerpt from their inoculating message. And what it did was it explained some of the techniques that the petition project used to mislead. There were lots of uh, fake names on there because it was an online petition, so anyone could fill it out. So we, had, we saw Star Wars characters, Spice Girls, um, people who had been long dead. 31,000 seems like a lot, but this was anyone with a science degree could fill it out, and, and, or US science degree to be precise. And there were millions of people with a science degree. So um, 31,000 was actually a tiny fraction of a percent of the total number of potential science graduates. And thirdly, because anyone with a science degree could fill out the form, almost everyone who filled it out didn't have expertise in climate science. There were computer scientists and medical scientists and ag science and um, veterinary science, mechanical engineering, chemical engineering. It was across a whole range of different fields, but less than 0.1% of the signatories actually had expertise in climate change. What the researchers found was when people were inoculated before showing the misinformation, uh, the misinformation was mostly neutralized and the facts were able to have a positive effect. At the same time that Sander van der Linden was conducting this research in the US, I was in Brisbane, Australia, doing my PhD research, and I was running almost an exactly the same experiment. Not even, uh, neither of us were aware at all of what the others were doing. It was by pure coincidence. Uh, that happens a lot. Um, independent researchers doing similar things, and, and then one gets their research published just before the other one, which can be quite frustrating. In this case, I was the one who was slow in getting my research published, but that was on me for being too slow to get it published. I digress. In my research, I was um, using the same misinformation, the Global Warming Petition Project. What I found was when people were shown just the misinformation by itself, it had a negative effect, just the same as Sanders' research did. Uh, and uh, this um, graph here shows the change in perceived consensus and the horizontal axis is political ideology. So to the right, are people who are more right-wing or conservative, to the left, people who are more left-wing or liberal. And what I found was people who were politically more conservative were more influenced by the misinformation. Whereas people who were at the left uh, end of the political spectrum, the climate misinformation had no influence on them. That's not to say that um, conservatives are more influenced by any form of misinformation, but in the case of climate change, uh, that, that seems to be the case. Uh, here is the inoculating message I showed to some people, some of the participants in my experiment. And there was a big difference between my inoculation and the other experiment by Sander van der Linden. I didn't mention the Global Warming Petition Project at all. I only talked in general terms about the technique of fake experts being used 
to cast doubt on a consensus. Um, fake experts being people who portray the impression of expertise, but don't have any actual relevant expertise. And I used, uh, whoops, and I used the tobacco industry and the ad campaigns that they ran in like the 50s, 60s and 70s, um, using fake experts, uh, using people in white coats. They even called it the White Coat Project, one of their ad campaigns, um, as a way to cast out on the scientific consensus that smoking causes cancer, which was a, interestingly, it was brought up yesterday. Uh, I won't get into that. Um, what I found was when people were uh, inoculated before showing the misinformation, the misinformation was um, completely neutralized. Um, don't be put off by the slope in the blue line. Statistically, it's equivalent to zero. Um, and what this tells us is across the political spectrum, people don't like being misled. And when you explain techniques used to mislead them, uh, it, um, it neutralizes that misinformation, whether people are liberal or conservative. Uh, what this also tells us is um, explaining techniques in, in a different scientific field can inoculate people in another field. I was inoculating people against a technique used by the tobacco industry, uh, but it inoculated them against uh, misinformation um, in climate change. It would be interesting now to do a test, test inoculating people against the climate change technique or tobacco technique and see whether it inoculates them against the Great Barrington Declaration. But, but if anyone wants to collaborate with me on that, I'm uh, happy to talk to them. So inoculation is, is a powerful tool for neutralizing misinformation. Uh, and once I finished my PhD and I came out of it with that inoculation as my answer, uh, my next research question was, well, how do you put that into practice? And uh, the answer um, was, was critical thinking. There were some critical thinking philosophers at the University of Queensland who I'd started talking to about their approach. Uh, and, and we started um, developing a way to use critical thinking to um, basically deconstruct and analyze misinformation. So, and, and when I say that critical thinking is like a universal vaccine against misinformation, what I mean by that is that research finding that inoculating people against the specific technique of denial inoculates them across different topics. So um, essentially you can vaccinate people against uh, all scientific topics um, just by a single inoculation about a specific technique. So let me give an example of the deconstruction approach um, that uh, I developed with these critical thinking philosophers at the University of Queensland. Here is a uh, claim from the 2016 Republican primaries when Marco Rubio was asked about climate change. And he, he argued the reason why climate's changing now is because climate has always changed naturally in the past. And when you deconstruct that claim into an argument, where an argument is a series of starting assumptions or premises, and a conclusion, um, that deconstruction process now enables you to more, um, uh, I guess, surgically identify where arguments go wrong. In this case, the argument um, is jumping to conclusions. The conclusion doesn't follow from the premises. 
Uh, and actually, I, I don't have a slide on this, but there is a, a hidden assumption in this argument, which I probably should add to the slide, which is that whatever caused climate change in the past must also be causing climate change now. And that assumption commits single cause fallacy, assuming that there's just one cause of, of climate change. So this process of, of deconstructing arguments is, is a robust way to systematically take claims, figure out is it misinformation or not? And then once you've done that, uh, you can identify the actual fallacy in, or denial rhetorical technique in the argument. This is the, the, the complete flowchart that we developed for deconstructing a, um, a misinformation claims. Um, but really the guts of it are, the, are just these three steps. Deconstruction, check whether the argument is logically valid, and then check whether the premises are true. Um, I think I've got time. I'm just going to very quickly give you a demonstration of that as a way of just making this kind of abstract critical thinking exercise a little bit more concrete. Um, we took the flowchart, we took that step-by-step -step approach and applied it to 50 of the most common myths about climate change. And what we got out of that was a summary of all the different fallacies or rhetorical techniques in each of these climate myths. So let's take that approach and apply it to the Global Warming Petition Project. The claim is that there's 31,000 science graduates who dissent against human-caused global warming, so there is no scientific consensus on human-caused global warming. And this argument, if we, or this claim, if we deconstruct it into an argument structure, basically has two assumptions or premises. The first being a large percentage of science graduates dissent against human-caused global warming. And secondly, anyone who has a degree in science is an expert in climate change. And, there, and then the conclusion is that uh, there's no scientific consensus that humans are causing global warming. Um, that's the first step, deconstruct. The second step is, is this logically valid? If these two premises are true, let's just assume that they're true, does it logically follow that the conclusion must be true as well? Uh, and in this case, the answer is yes. This argument is logically valid. If we assume that the premises are true, then uh, it will logically follow that the conclusion must be true as well. So then we go to the third and final step. Are the premises true? And neither are true, they're both false. Uh, the first premise commits the fallacy of magnified minority. Um, 31,000 seems like a lot, but it's a, it's a tiny fraction of the total number of science graduates. So there isn't a large percentage of science graduates who dissent, it's a tiny fraction. Secondly, the second premise assumes that people who have a degree in one field must also be experts in the field of climate change. And that's not the case. And it seems like a trivial thing to say, right? Just because you get a degree in veterinary science, that doesn't make you an expert in climate science. But fake experts are highly persuasive. They're one of the most persuasive forms of misinformation because you throw someone in a white coat or you put someone on TV or in the media or just, just talking anywhere and they've got a university under their name and they're speaking techno babble. That is a credible expert to the general public if they're not paying close attention. So, so fake experts is, is a very persuasive form of misinformation. So 
having developed a critical thinking way to identify the rhetorical techniques and misinformation, the next question then is a communication one. How do you communicate that effectively to the public? And so I've been researching that for the last couple of years here at George Mason University. One of them is do what I just did. Um, take people, walk them through the critical thinking process. Um, and that's, that is really powerful and it empowers people in being able to spot misinformation. The problem with that approach though is it's hard work. It's, uh, it's cognitive, cognitively hard work and difficult to logic our way through arguments. Um, I mean, in a perfect world, we will all be doing this, but, um, and that's <laughs> my critical thinking philosophers. When we were writing this paper, I realized halfway through that that's what they were, that's their goal with this paper was to turn everyone into philosophers like them. Um, me, I'm a communication researcher. I was looking for a methodology to develop um, inoculating messages uh, and then figure out a, a, a effective way to communicate it. And so I started looking at um, a different way to inoculate people based on this critical thinking framework. And that's using basically logic analogies or philosophers call it parallel argumentation. Take the flawed logic in a myth and transplant it into a parallel analogous situation. Uh, the more absurd and extreme that analogous situation, the more clear and obvious the original logical flaw is. The argument that climate is changing now because climate has always changed naturally is exactly the same as finding a murder victim, an obviously murdered victim, and arguing, well, people have always died of natural causes, so this person must have died of natural causes as well. Um, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise. Uh, the, you know, the parallel situation is obviously ridiculous. People see that. Um, but it's exactly the same logic as the original climate has always changed argument. It commits the same single cause fallacy. And so I've been um, building up a, a basically a library of parallel arguments applied to climate misinformation. Uh, and, and because before I was a scientist, I was a cartoonist, drawing all these parallel arguments in cartoon form. I realized while I was doing the critical thinking research that cartoons are the perfect delivery mechanism for, um, for parallel arguments. And then eventually after uh, building enough of these um, parallel arguments in cartoon form, I um, published a book uh, that summarized them all, Cranky Uncles versus Climate Change, which is basically um, an, a series of inoculations against the most common myths about climate change. Um, and a lot of them are in cartoon form. It explains the facts. It tries to make the facts as sticky as possible. Often I use analogies and cartoons to make the science sticky, but I also use analogies to explain the fallacies and rhetorical techniques in misinformation. Uh, I want to talk about one more thing and I, I will just speak about this for a minute uh, and then that will leave us a bit of time for Q&A. Uh, the last thing that I've been looking at is a new, fairly new and new in one sense, even though it was first mentioned back in the 50s. But really, it's only been the last couple of years that scientists have been playing with this uh, using technology. And that's active inoculation. Everything I've been talking about up to this point has been passive inoculation, which is giving, communicating inoculating messages to people who passively 
receive the information, which is, you know, it's, it's an effective form of inoculation. But active inoculation has a potential to be potentially even more powerful. And what that involves is people interactively being involved in the inoculation process. Um, the, the, I guess, the seminal research done on this was again by Sander van der Linden, um, who several years ago published a game called Get Bad News. Uh, so getbadnews.com, you can check out the game right now. And what this game does is it teaches you how to become a fake news merchant. You play this game, you learn the techniques of fake news. Uh, there's these six badges that you um, accrue. And, and you try to build Twitter followers through this game. But, and by the time you get to the end of the game, you've learned six techniques that fake news use to mislead people. And what the research showed was when people were tested on their ability to spot fake news before the game and after the game, the game improved their ability to spot these techniques of fake news. So by interactively playing a game where you're learning these techniques yourself, you become inoculated against the techniques. What I've been working on is a similar approach, but inoculating people against the techniques of science denial. Uh, and so we've been developing this smartphone game for the last, um, well, just over the course of this year, um, called Cranky Uncle. And it takes a lot of the content from the Cranky Uncle book and it, um, it turns, it gamifies it, it turns it into, um, game form. And the idea of it is you get mentored by a cranky uncle to become a cranky uncle. Uh, so he explains techniques of uh, science denial. Uh, it also uses a lot of cartoons as a way of making it more engaging and, and more concrete. And then, and this is important, then you practice uh, your critical thinking. Uh, so it gives you a lot of examples of misinformation and, and logical fallacies, arguments with fallacies, and you have to spot the fallacies and you have to practice this over and over and over again. Text fallacies, cartoon fallacies, lots of examples. And the idea is by practicing critical thinking, it essentially takes what is a difficult thing to do, um, identify fallacies in arguments, this, this hard critical thinking approach, and by, through practice, it makes it a quick, easier, almost effortless task. Uh, so that's, that's the goal of the Cranky Uncle game. Oops. Um, if you want to get more information about it though, you can uh, just jump on the crankyuncle.com and we're, we're getting, we're very close to beta testing the game now. So if you want to get updates on the game development, you can subscribe to be notified of just um, latest news of the game. Uh, and the other thing I, I want to point you at is um, I, over the last uh, several months, I've been teaching a grad class here at George Mason on understanding and countering climate misinformation. Um, and it's, it's mostly climate students, but a couple of communication students as well. Uh, but because it's a virtual class, I've been creating all these video lectures. And I've also been putting the videos uh, lectures on YouTube. So if you go to that URL at the bottom, sks.to slash climate vids, um, that goes into much more detail on all the content that I've just been talking about. How to make your science stickier, how to structure a debunking, how to spot and deconstruct um, denialist claims. Um, and uh, last week I posted a 40 minute video on 23 different um, techniques of science denial. 
next week uh, I'm posting a video about conspiracy theories and the different traits of conspiratorial thinking. So you can check it all out there. Um, but I think I will end this show and I'm happy to answer questions now. All right, thank you so much, uh, John. This is fascinating and excellent uh, talk. Um, we have a few uh, questions. Um, I also uh, just want to tell the audience um, that you can uh, just click on the Q&A button and uh, you can just simply uh, type in a question uh, that then I can convey um, to John. Um, also, uh, if you wish, I have, um, I, uh, you can raise your hand virtually uh, and I can um, then uh, allow you to speak. Um, so you can ask the question directly to John, um, but just be aware that, um, that you, in doing so, you uh, agree to be um, recorded um, uh, through video and audio. Um, so, uh, John, um, uh, there's uh, kind of, could, I was wondering uh, if you could just, uh, just, uh, in a, just a little bit, give us a little bit, a better sense of uh, the parallels here um, with, uh, between climate misinformation and, uh, and the pandemic, uh, misinformation surrounding the pandemic. And uh, kind of what, what are your thoughts right now on what's developing and um, and are there kind of any higher order, you know, truths that can come out of kind of comparing these two cases here? Yeah, the thing that struck me over the course of this year was this, the, a lot of parallels between climate and COVID misinformation. Uh, and the big difference is just the time frame. Climate misinformation has been bubbling and percolating away for two decades. Or just imagine taking that two decades of development and cramming it into like a couple of months. That's basically what happened. And so when the COVID misinformation started flying around, being a misinformation nerd who likes building databases for anything, I started collecting the different claims. And it, it just, I was immediately struck at just the diversity of claims and how they were covering all the same rhetorical techniques that I documented in climate misinformation. The, the, uh, the five techniques of science denial, summarized with the acronym FLIC, fake experts, logical fallacies, impossible expectations, cherry picking and conspiracy theories. That was all immediately and obviously on offer with COVID misinformation. And so that inspired me. Uh, and the other big difference between COVID and climate was people were much more concerned and alarmed about COVID misinformation compared to climate misinformation. Uh, and you, we saw that in a couple of different ways. Firstly, mainstream media were much more aggressive in fact-checking COVID misinformation immediately when it reared its ugly head. Social media platforms were suddenly miraculously proactive in taking down COVID misinformation after years of telling us, well, we can't do anything about climate misinformation. Technically, it's too hard. We can't do that. Uh, it just shows that uh, it wasn't a matter of technology or practicality, it was a matter of will. Um, and thirdly, we started doing research, testing different COVID myths. And in order to do an experiment about misinformation that works, you have to get a statistically significant negative effect of the misinformation. I showed that in the two experiments um, I, uh, about climate change here. We couldn't get those negative effects in. It basically ruined our experiments. Like, 
we would we we did a COVID misinformation experiment. There was a null effect on the misinformation. We thought, oh, well, that was a waste. So so then we did a um, pilot experiment where we tested six different myths. Let's just find the best one, and then we'll focus on that. None of them worked. <laughs> so we're like, God, how do we like people are so unalert to COVID misinformation that we couldn't get an effect. Uh, it's it was kind of our um, it was like our bit. Now more, we just got bogged down in, this, in trying to research this topic. Very frustrating. But um, the reason why I think is because the psychological distance between us and COVID is way, way smaller than the psychological distance with climate change, which uh, people perceive as being happening into the future and at a different place and to different people and hypothetically into the future. There's these four degrees of psychological distance. With COVID, it's much shorter. It should be even shorter, like there are people are behaving in ways that, that are, are quite reckless. Um, uh, but relative compared to climate, the psychological distance is much smaller. And that means that people are much more concerned. And I thought, well, this is a potential, like there's a potential um, opportunity to make lemonade out of lemons here. If people are so concerned about COVID misinformation, and given the fact that critical thinking is the universal vaccine against misinformation, I saw this as an opportunity to try to inoculate people against misinformation in general. So I started creating a lot of videos uh, about the rhetorical techniques in COVID misinformation. Um, I don't have a link in any of my slides, but I think the link is co-videos. Um, so it's, yeah, if you go sks.to slash co-videos, um, I think you'll find all the videos I made about COVID misinformation. Great. Um, and so uh, I just want to keep going. I, I could I could have a conversation with you for hours, basically, about <laughs> just about this. But uh, I want to. Um, we have some great questions here and comments. Um, so uh, Eileen Cullity from uh, Dublin City University um, says, "Excellent work, John." I've been using your ideas with students and find it very effective. My question is, as many people find logic and critical thinking difficult, do you think it can be widely applied to groups who are susceptible to disinformation, but may not have exercised critical thinking skills before? I'm thinking of older digital media users in particular. Um, yeah, definitely. That's actually the thing that I've been concerned about. And I, and I alluded to that in my presentation. Because critical thinking is hard and because the, like the philosophers I work with want to turn people into these logical, you know, Mr. Spots. But, but as a cognitive scientist, I know how difficult that is, um, particularly for certain segments of the population. And so I'm trying to find ways to kind of, if Muhammad won't come, come to the mountain, how does the mountain, I forget the um, saying, but uh, you know, how do we bring, how do we make critical thinking more accessible to people? Uh, and and so cartoons was one way that I've been testing that. And I, I didn't go into the details, but we've been testing that. We've been testing the critical thinking deconstruction approach versus the cartoon approach. And the really interesting thing we found was both are roughly equally effective, but through different pathways. We found that critical thinking is seen as more credible. And so that's kind of the mediator that makes that approach effective. Cartoons grab people's attention. Uh, uh, and so it, it, they look at it more, they, they think about it more. So 
it's it's a and that's the pathway or the mediator through which that uh, cartoons are able to neutralize misinformation and we just were looking at some research we um, published um well, not published i'm um, just starting to do the data analysis now that found that um that approach is also more likely to be shared and people are more likely to interact with it on social media so it's it's a much more engaging um means uh, but but I, I we haven't done much testing on it yet but i think that games are again an even more powerful approach because of that interactive quality and because of the practice element um there's Daniel Kahneman, uh, who won a Nobel Prize for his psychological research, talks about fast and slow thinking. Fast thinking being that instant reaction, the kind of effortless thinking that we all do and mostly do, and slow thinking, which is the effortful reasoning through difficult problems. And he talks about how slow thinking is effortful, it's hard. It's, we do it a lot less than the fast thinking. But he also talks about a third type of thinking which he calls expert heuristics, which is basically when experts practice a task over and over, difficult, complicated tasks, it becomes effortless. Uh, it becomes quick. It, it becomes like fast thinking. And my hypothesis, which we will test in this game, is that practicing critical thinking through a game, doing the same task over and over, will convert that difficult critical thinking process into a effortless fast thinking so we'll we'll find that out um over the next few months great um so looking forward to that uh so just to make sure that we're not just uh, lobbing softballs at you john um, <laughs> uh so um al asks uh it seems that there will always be a politician who will say the opposite and unpopular side of an argument of any argument um is there any point to try and stop that or should that be even the media's job? Yeah, I think it's, a, it's important to distinguish between scientific topics, particularly scientific topics where there's a consensus and issues of politics and opinion. Uh, it's entirely appropriate for there to be two sides of a political issue or you know, issue, issues of opinion. But when there's a scientific consensus on an issue, then um, it's inappropriate for the media to bring on an astronomer and also bring on a flat earther. That doesn't do service to the public. That kind of false balance only misinforms the public. Uh, and some of my research found that if you, if you like media articles that present climate change as this both sides uh, debate has a misinforming effect. So, um, so I don't think I've quite answered Al's question yet other than, um, is there a point to try to stop that? If, if it's issues of scientific consensus, then yes, because the misinformation, misinformation has all these damaging effects. I talked about um, how it polarizes, how it makes people believe wrong things and how it cancels out facts. Um, misinformation also reduces um, public support for like things like climate, um, climate action or misinformation causes people to behave dangerously um, around COVID. Uh, and so that has direct um, health consequences, not just for the person who's misinformed, but everyone who has to breathe the droplets of air around that person. If people are resistant to masks because they heard misinformation that 
mask wearing causes CO2 poisoning or some other misinformation, then they're endangering anyone that they're, they're being around. Uh, so uh, there is definitely like, it's essential um, because misinformation cancels out accurate information. Uh, it's crucial that anyone who in, is involved in engaging the public about science, about facts, or about any accurate information, they have to be aware that there is misinformation out there that could cancel out their work. And if we put all our effort into just doing accurate or effective climate communication, you know, we could do all the right steps in making sure that our science communication is well-designed and follows best practices and um, is tested. The 97% message was tested um, super thoroughly by my colleagues here at George Mason, but all of that was canceled out by the Global Warming Petition Project. So, you know, there, we're having a Zoom meeting about how to effectively communicate climate change or other issues. There are other Zoom meetings where there's people generating misinformation and how to cancel out um, the, our efforts. Uh, and so we can't be naive about that. We need to right. have our eyes open about how our efforts to communicate and engage the public can be canceled out by misinformation. So maybe even jumping a, a bit off that then, uh, Jennifer Murphy asks, um, she says, thanks uh, for the really interesting talk. Are there some people too far down the rabbit hole for inoculation method to work on them? So, uh, or could this technique work on even the most convinced cases? So the most hardened conspiracy theorists out there, um, can inoculation theory work? So the kind of implicit, um, I guess, assumption or truth of inoculation theory is that it's about inoculating the rest of the public against the misinformers. And so one analogy I use is science denial is, and conspiracy theorists are, is a bit like polio, an incurable disease that was eradicated, essentially eradicated over just a few decades from hundreds of thousands of cases to a handful of cases. We didn't cure it, we just inoculated and it stopped the disease from spreading and it got wiped out. Uh, and so there's a lot of research showing that people who deny science or, or conspiracy theorists are incredibly difficult to change their minds because they distrust the science. They distrust any evidence that conflicts with their conspiracy theory. And in fact, if they encounter any evidence that shows that their conspiracy theory is wrong, they just assume that that evidence was generated by the conspirators anyway. So there's no, well, there's very little you can do to persuade a person like that. So in the case of climate change in the US, which is, um, kind of one of the worst countries. In most other countries, it's better than this. But even in the US, only 10% of the population are dismissive about climate change. So I see inoculation theory as a strategy for the 90% of the population who are open to evidence, um, but vulnerable to being misinformed. And it's about building up their resilience so that they're less vulnerable to um, being misled by the 10% you would dismiss it. Uh, but one more thing on that. Even within that 90%, like we, it's, it's very helpful to see the public not as just as, you know, single mass, but different audiences. Uh, and th even this is a little bit simplistic, but it's helpful. Uh, in the US, that amongst that 90%, um, 
It's actually 93%. There was new data that came out last week that showed that the dismissives are now at 7%. I need to update my spiel about that. Sorry about that. But um, uh, amongst that 93%, um, around 58%, or over 50% are concerned or alarmed. And then the other 30 odd percent are uh, uh, disengaged. Um, and these are two different groups. And I, and I think from a communication point of view, we should have two different goals. And inoculation works with both. Inoculation builds the resilience of the disengaged and potentially engages them. For the uh, engaged, inoculation can empower and activate them. Most of the 58% of concerned and alarmed don't talk about climate change with their friends and family. They self-censor because they're worried that they'll encounter pushback and be made to look stupid by their cranky uncles. Inoculation um, research shows that there's this thing called post-inoculation talk. When people learn the counter-arguments that they might encounter, that empowers them to be more confident to talk about the issue. Um, and so inoculation also has a potential to break climate silence. And kind of thinking about like in the trenches, changing, uh, inoculating and, and defending the population from kind of spreading of uh, misinformation, um, one of the uh, audience members um, asked, uh, do you see social media as more of a threat or opportunity in relation to using or facilitating inoculation theory? So kind of how does social, how does social media work here? Can we use it? Can we turn the power, can we harness that power for good or, or is it more tricky than that? Yeah, um, the answer depends on the social media platforms. The big challenge here is that the financial models of the platforms depends on user interaction, clicks and likes and shares, all those interactions of what add to their bottom line. And misinformation is more likely to be clicked and shared and interacted with. So they have a financial interest in promoting misinformation, which is why on most issues, they've been resistant to actually proactively stopping misinformation from spreading across their networks. So while that financial incentive remains, um, I think there is, you know, we can use social media for good and, and I'm trying to do that, but I would probably say it's more of a threat because misinformation is more likely to be shared than accurate information. Uh, have, I mean, there's research that has shown that, although now that, as I say that, I think they probably haven't tested accurate information in the form of cartoons, so we'll have to, <laughs> we'll have to test that. But um, yeah, but there's, there's threats and opportunities, but I think a, it, a lot of it depends on the social media platforms who, um, who are, have a responsibility. Uh, and an example is Facebook, who allow misinformation to spread freely, like about climate change through their, through Facebook. Um, and their response to it was to, to create this information hub, um, which provides accurate information, that's good. But as I've explained in my talk, facts can be canceled out by misinformation. Uh, so the analogy I use with this situation is like doing parallel argumentation. Uh, it's like um, poisoning people while giving them a brochure about healthy vegetables. That's essentially what providing an information hub does. 
if, if they're still allowing that poison to flow through the system. All right, well, we're, we're running up uh, towards the end of the of our time, but, um, but I wanna, uh, there's one last question um, about the app Ariella Turley, Ariella Turley asks, um, are you going to aim the cranky, are you going to aim the cranky uncle app towards schools at all? It could be a great part of a school curriculum in order to encourage young people to begin thinking critically. So how are we engaging with uh, our youngsters? Yeah, when I started developing the game, I, I was I was thinking of it as an app just for the general public. Uh, but then when I started explaining the game to climate scientists, um, I w climate scientists who most of them teach, you know, college classes, um, I was really taken aback by their enthusiasm for wanting to use the game in their classrooms. And multiple conversations along those lines finally broke through my skull that, hey, this is actually an opportunity um, in the classroom. And I finally came to realize that um, using the game in the classroom is probably the way, the most effective way that this game will make a difference and shift the needle amongst the general population. And in fact, I realized that there were three big issues with climate change and the game had the potential to solve all of them. The first was the the basic cognitive challenge of difficult critical thinking. And we've talked about how a game can make critical thinking easy. The second was the challenge of um, echo chambers. The fact that our communities are all siloed. And even if you develop the perfect inoculating message, I had no, for years I've been wondering, what's the point of developing all these perfect inoculations if we can't get them into communities? And I realized that classrooms, um, uh, are a perfect way to crack echo chambers. And the third challenge, and some of the questions reflected this as well, is partisanship. Um, people are tribal, and, and actually political affiliation or tribalness or tribality is, is the biggest predictor of climate denial. Uh, and so how do you get around that? Um, and one thing I, I find really compelling uh, some of the public engagement campaigns that harness potentially negative traits, or maybe not negative, but specific challenging traits of psychology and harnessing them for good. And one of them is the Don't Mess With Texas campaign, which took that kind of individualistic streak of Texans and used it to uh, um, encourage people to um, stop littering. And it was a really effective strategy. I think that um, our goal down the track, not initially, but uh, as the game develops, is to set it up so that people can play each other individually, but then have people, groups, play other groups. I'm hoping that we can get classrooms from different colleges playing, having critical thinking contests. And then tribality and um, that kind of competitive, uh, uh, I guess, instinct can be used to motivate people to learn critical thinking and build their resilience against misinformation. So yeah, uh, I, we are definitely aiming the game towards schools. Uh, I'm already talking, like we've done a lot of tests in classrooms. We found that the game, the first version of the game, which was focused on climate change, actually inoculated people against misinformation in vaccination and flat earthism and other areas of science denial kind of uh, reinforcing that idea of the universal vaccine. 
uh, and uh, we've tested it in high schools and colleges and found that it worked in both contexts. I'm not quite sure yet how low it can go and whether we need to create a, a specific middle school version or even elementary version. But um, that's definitely, I think, the, the, our best path forward. Well, excellent. Well, um, that's all the time we have. But uh, John, uh, Dr. John Cook, thank you so much for um, this very in, important, timely and fascinating uh, talk. And we very much look forward to seeing your research um, as it develops. And um, on behalf of Trinity and all the audience members, thank you so much. Thank, thanks for inviting me. And sorry, I can't be there in person. Next year. Yeah, <laughs> definitely.